0: Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I'm presenting
1: a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John, and this program is the seventh program in this series. In this program, I'm going to spend some time in John chapter 1, verse 34, where John the Baptist spoke of Jesus as the Son of God. And then I'll be spending some time talking about verses 35 to 39 with reference to choosing the disciples or how the disciples, the first two disciples, were chosen. With regards to verse 34, John the Baptist said, And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Now, what did it mean to be the Son of God? I mean, people could suggest that, well, if... There is a son of God, then there might be a mother, uh, a mother and a father. There there may be other sons. There might be a daughter. Using these words that do have distinctive meaning to us and how we use these words, because of this, it can lead to a tremendous amount of confusion. So I need to remind you about what was written previously in the Gospel of John In John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is an introduction in order to identify God as being expressed as a Word or the Word. This is an abstract description of our God, an abstract description. And then in verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, without going through all the abstract issues or the theological concepts that could be expressed from this, what I want you to see is that there is an identification with God. That God is referred to as a Word and that the Word became flesh And that is who we saw, which was Jesus, or who the people saw during this time when this was written. What this means is, is that God went through a change. That's what I want you to see. I want you to understand this from the perspective that God went through a change. He became flesh. He became a person. Now, that might not seem like such a big deal to you. But to me, that's a big deal to say that God went through a change. And that is a serious change with regards to how he would manifest himself, how he would live, how he would interact with other people. Whatever he was before was one thing. But then he became something else. Now, in becoming something else, I don't think that he took away anything about who he really is in totality. In other words, I think it's reasonable in the limited ways that we are able to comprehend and understand the universe that we are a part of. It's reasonable to say that our God decided to manifest himself in the flesh as a person But in doing so, he did not have to give up anything about the fullness of who he is as a God, but that this would just be one more thing that he would be doing compared to what he would be doing normally just an additional task, and that we have a God who can do multiple things, who can manifest in multiple ways, who can speak to multiple people simultaneously, as if he's speaking to each one and they are the only one he is speaking to, and yet he can be communicating with many people at the same time, that we have a God who is capable, who has the capacity of doing so much more than what we can do in our limited conditions. And that when he became flesh, when he made that change, it was just a part of who he is that did not take away from everything else that he does and maintains as God. But between verse 1 and 2 in John chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 and verse 14, I think it is perfectly reasonable and very clear that we can state that Jesus was God manifested in the flesh. But because it says in verse 14 that he became flesh and that he dwelt among us, this does describe a state of change or a change of state in a unique way. And this unique way, this unique change of state is what the people were referring to when they identified him as the son of God. They would not speak to each other in the same way, using the same phrase. They would not identify themselves or identify somebody else as being the Son of God. By using this phrase for the Lord Jesus, it is a way of saying, well, you are certainly not the fullness of who he is, but you certainly are him. It's just that you are presenting yourself in a way that represents a certain amount of restraint, that represents a certain amount of participation in a very interesting way. He can eat with us. He can speak with us. He can work. He can go to sleep. He can talk with us. We can have a conversation with him. We can ask him questions, and he can ask us questions. We can reply to one another. This was a special moment, a special relationship. And so in order to distinguish between the fullness of God And this time in history, when he decided to come and dwell with us as a person, in order to distinguish between the God of the universe and his manifestation of who he is as Jesus, he was referred to as the Son of God, considered to be equal with God in all respects. Now what some people will do is they will look at this and they will say, okay, well this means that he really isn't the fullness of God or that maybe God can be described in multiple personalities. Maybe there are multiple persons associated with God and some people will say that this is a way to describe the Trinity, to say that there is the Heavenly Father, that there is the Son, and that there is the Holy Spirit, and that these are three separate individuals or three separate persons. I totally reject this myself. I have no interest in this understanding whatsoever. I don't see it at all. To me, it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. I don't think that there are three persons at all. A lot of people do, and if they want to believe that, they are certainly free to do so. But as for myself, this is how I understand my God, that he became flesh, that he went through a change, not that there were already two different persons or three different persons and that one decided to show up and leave the other one behind and one other in transit. I really do believe that this is just simply a way to describe our God in the state that he decided to manifest himself to us in so that we can have a more intimate and relational moment with him as a person. So this is an important distinction for some people. Uh, For others, it's not such a big deal. I think it's important to mention this because Nathaniel refers to him as the son of God later on. I'll speak about that in the next message I expect. But regardless, what I would like you to see is that we do have a God who decided to spend time with us personally and whether you want to exclusively refer to him as the son of God and not God himself, that's something that you can certainly do. But I don't want you to be confused by my constant referral to him as our God and as the God who manifested in the flesh because that's what I genuinely believe as what was conveyed at the beginning of John chapter 1. And there are, of course, a number of other passages that I refer to when I study this subject for myself. Now, after John the Baptist identified Jesus as the Messiah, there were two of John's disciples who decided to leave him and go follow Jesus. This was described in John chapter one, verse thirty five. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Now, this is a big deal. It's a very big deal because these were people, these were two people who identified themselves with John the Baptist. And the message that they were baptized in at this time was the message of, you are just as unclean as a Gentile. You need to commit your life and devote your life to the Mosaic law to the extent that you would be converted to Judaism as a Gentile would be converted. Because even though you are a Jew, it doesn't mean that you are automatically right with God. You need to repent from your sins. And obey. And then Jesus comes along and now they are going to leave John the Baptist and go follow Jesus. Now it's reasonable for them to do this because John the Baptist tells them that this is the person who is greater than him, that this is the Messiah. So by all means, go. But not all of John's disciples follow Jesus. We saw that in the previous messages where I spoke about John being recognized as Elijah the prophet when John was in prison and he sent his disciples to go and talk with Jesus and ask him, are you the one that we are looking for? And Jesus said to them, well, of course I am. Go back and tell John that these are the things that are going on. And then Jesus spoke with his disciples and described John the Baptist as Elijah, as Elijah the prophet, if you were willing to receive Jesus for who he was, and if you were willing to receive the message that was coming from John the Baptist, John the Baptist fulfilled the role and the office of Elijah, as was described. What I want you to remember, though, is that there were disciples of John the Baptist who were still hanging out with him and apparently were not devoted to the Lord Jesus in the way that the other disciples were. I think this is worth noticing. It is worth noticing the fact that some people will find it difficult to let go of something that is going on in their life in order to embrace something that is better. They may find it difficult to let go of something, and it may very well be valid and true in its own respect, but they would be unwilling to let go of it in order to embrace that which is better. And this is a way to understand one of the challenges that people will often face when trying to make the transition between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. For a person to let go of the Old Covenant and embrace the New Covenant can sometimes be quite an ordeal. As for myself, I found it very difficult to embrace the New Covenant until the Lord gave me enough revelation to understand the differences between the two, to see how he fulfilled the law that was given through Moses so that I could understand and embrace the new covenant in terms of the inheritance that was given to me as a result of the death of the Lord Jesus. Beforehand, I thought that my life was to be devoted to trying to obtain blessings and avoid cursings. And this is true. This is legitimate under the old covenant. But in order to embrace the reality of the new covenant and the inheritance that I have in Christ and learn how to live according to that, I had to let go of the old. And this was a transition. This was difficult. I have known many people over the years who simply were not willing to make that much of a transition, that they would prefer to stick with what they knew and what they understood and with what they grew up with and not venture too far away from that to something that would be so new and so different. But over the period of time, some people are willing to embrace the new covenant a little bit at a time. And I have found that through my years of experience, it is reasonable, it is appropriate to allow people to have lots of time lots of time to adjust to things that are new to them, to adjust to adjust to things that are definitely true under the new covenant that we are to live by, but will require you to let go of other things that you may have held to for a very long time and might have a very important part in your history and in your life and your understanding of your relationship with God. People do often need time in order to make dramatic adjustments. But here we have one that takes place within a day where we have two disciples that go follow Jesus right away. Now, when it says that they followed Jesus in verse 34, the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. That didn't mean that Jesus automatically accepted them as his disciples. If you wanted to be the disciple of a rabbi during this time in history, there was no way that you could just go to a rabbi and notify him that you are now his disciple. In order to become the disciple of a rabbi, you had to be accepted by that rabbi. In fact, you had to be invited by that rabbi to be his disciple. You couldn't just invite yourself. You couldn't just insert yourself into his life, into his synagogue or his home or his business or whatever he was doing and say, well, here I am. I am your disciple. That is just not the way that things worked. Even today, I hear from people and it's not unusual that I hear from people like this, Where they effectively notify me that they are my disciple, in a sense, or that they are a part of my ministry, in a sense, or that they look up to me as the person who's going to guide them through their daily lives and help them solve the problems that they have of life. It's not unusual for a person to approach me from that point of view or with that kind of an attitude. And I do have to let them know in one way or another in order to be polite, I have to let them know That, listen, you know, you have your life that you're living, and I have mine, and I have a work that my God has given me to do, but that doesn't mean that he's given it to me so that I can pass it on to you, and it doesn't mean that a part of what I am doing is going to be given to you either. It doesn't mean that at all. If you want to do work with God, talk to him. Don't talk to me. Sometimes I hear from people and they say, I want to be a part of your ministry in the sense that they want to be a representative of the ministry. They want to be one of our missionaries or they want to be one of our teachers or they want to plant a church in our name. And we can refer people to their church and their ministry and so that we can encourage the building of their local body in that respect. Now, listen, I don't want to say that those things are bad at all. And I'm not going to say that I will or will not do that, considering every circumstance, every circumstance and person I relate to in a different way. But I do have a fundamental way that I live, and that is that I live as a servant of my God. And so I do what he tells me to do. I don't do what other people tell me to do or ask me to do. If I do, then I do that because I want to or If the Lord directs me to, I'll do that. But I don't do it because they tell me to do that or because they decided that they are going to insert themselves into my life and therefore be my disciple in a sense. This is an important thing to understand in order to appreciate what's happening here. Now, in the work that I am doing, I do get paid for the work that I do. That's the model that I function under in order to do the volume the amount of work that I do. If I wasn't paid for what I do, then I certainly would continue to do it, but I would do a small amount, a very small amount. It would be so small that it would be unlikely that you would notice that I was doing much of anything. But because I'm able to obtain financial support through donations from people who have benefited from the work that I have done and they want others to benefit from this work as well, I am able to keep working. But back during the time of the Lord Jesus, the Pharisees had a fundamental rule with regards to how they would teach others. And that was that they would never receive financial compensation for teaching others. Every rabbi had a job. Every rabbi worked. Even Nicodemus, the rabbi of rabbis, he was a well digger. He dug wells. He repaired wells. That's what he did. And so if you wanted to become the disciple of Nicodemus, you have to understand that this is going to happen when he's done digging a well or repairing a well, and that would have been a hard day's work for him. And so if you would like to have his attention, and you want him to talk with you, relate with you, teach you, this is going to be a big deal for him to allow you to be a part of his life. So how would a person obtain the favor of a rabbi to the extent that the rabbi would invite them to be one of their disciples. Well, the first thing that you would need to do would be to locate this rabbi and learn from him as much as you possibly can. Now, if you don't have an interactive relationship with him because he has not invited you to have an interactive relationship with him, then the best you can do is observe him and learn from him just by watching him. Maybe you can overhear him speak to other people. Maybe he will speak to you, and you can learn something from the things that he says. But for the most part, people learned by watching, by observation, by studying how someone else lived. And so you would follow the rabbi around. That's what you would do. You would follow him around, and you would do so in a way that you would want him to know that you were following him, that you were paying attention to him that you were learning from him, and this could take weeks or months or maybe even years, that you would learn what you could by watching him, and he would probably notice you, and he may study you as well in order to determine whether or not you are applying the things that you should have learned from watching him into your own life. And maybe he will ask other people questions about you to find out what kinds of changes you have made because they have been studying you as a rabbi, as an example. These were things that took place during this time when a disciple or a prospective disciple would follow a rabbi around, hoping that the rabbi would take an interest in them and be willing to teach them. Now, if the rabbi decided eventually, if he decided to go ahead and consider you as one of his disciples, he would let you know. He doesn't need you to let him know. He already knows just by the fact that you're following him around all over the place. He would know that you already have an interest in him. But you would have to wait out of respect and out of regard. You would have to wait until he approached you. And the question that the rabbi would ask the prospective disciple was, what do you seek? Or what are you looking for? A question such as that. Now, if the person really wanted to be the disciple of the rabbi and he's asked that question, then the response is another question, which is, where do you live? Or where are you staying? Why? Because the interest the disciple has, he really has, is he really wants to know how to live, how to live his life. He has been watching the rabbi outside of his dwelling place, outside of his regular private life, in a sense. He's been observing him and learning from him as much as he can. But when it comes to real discipleship, the real question is, how do I really live And for me to be able to learn that, I need to go and see where you live, learn how you live so that I can learn how I should live, and then I will go and live the way that you teach me as an example. And so that's the conversation that we have here. It is the standard traditional conversation between a prospective disciple and a prospective rabbi. Again, in verse 37, it says, the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following, said to them, what do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. And that was how Jesus obtained his first two disciples. Now, this was not the model that he used in order to obtain more disciples. It was just what was happening with these first two. And so I don't want you to get the impression that this was the only way that a person would be able to follow Jesus or be a part of his ministry or a part of his life. That was not the only way. Jesus did select other disciples in other ways. I just wanted to mention this because this is what the culture would expect at that time. This is what people would have understood. And the way that John wrote this, I think that he wanted you to see that this was important to the disciples. It was important to Jesus and that it was fitting considering what they knew and what they understood at that time and that Jesus accommodated that. He allowed for that. He participated in that. Just because it was a Pharisaical tradition didn't mean that Jesus had to make sure that he did not obtain his disciples in that manner. And I will continue in the next program. Thank you for listening. This program is the seventh program in the verse-by-verse study on the Gospel of John. In this program, I spent some time talking about the phrase, Son of God, referring to Jesus as the Son of God. And why I don't believe that this represents some different person than the fullness of our God in eternity, but is only a description of how our God manifested in the flesh, how he made a change to dwell among us as a man and to live as a man would live to include acknowledging his God. I also spent some time talking about how the first two disciples were selected by the Lord Jesus and how they followed the standard rabbinical model. In the next program I will talk about Nathaniel and why he would proclaim that Jesus was the Son of God, the King of Israel.